Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your dungeon master, Ryan Howard, and today we have brought on the show, once again, the very first guest that we ever had on Rollin' Bones, that being Mr. Tim Mathias from the Knights and Nerds podcast. And this is also one of the first episodes that we've done. I I did a loose episode with uh, Skeeter Green where we had kind of a topic that we were going for. But this is the first episode that is absolutely 100% dedicated to a single topic, and that is what you need to know when you first want to become a dungeon master. This episode is very much designed for people who are just now taking the plunge into DMing If you are someone who is thinking about, you know, kind of picking up that Dungeon Master's Guide and running your first one-shot or running your first campaign, this episode is for you. If you know someone who's thinking about making that plunge, this episode is for them as well. Share this with anyone who you think would be a good Dungeon Master or someone who's expressed interest in, in DMing. And hopefully they can get something out of that and, and be more confident sitting down at the head of that table for the first time. Now, before we get into that, I, I do have uh, a, a short story to, to tell you guys. Uh, last night, as I'm recording this, I went for uh, my first session of a new campaign that I'll be playing in. This was a, uh, this a Star Trek game. Uh, and I am decently familiar with Star Trek, uh, mostly with uh, The Next Generation, uh, but a little bit with, with some of the other properties. And I've seen probably about half of the movies, uh, the, the older movies. I've seen all but one of the, the new movies. But if I start mentioning the new movies, Star Trek fans are going to try to kill me. So forget I mentioned those. Anyway, uh, so I show up. And it's, it's with a, a friend of a friend, but a guy that I, I have gotten to know pretty well over the, the past few months that I've been in Nashville. And uh, it was him, he was the, the GM, he's running the game, uh, his wife, and then a friend of theirs. And uh, we were basically just creating our characters, that was kind of the, the main thrust of what we were doing there, was just, just making our characters for this game that's going to meet once a month and we uh we, you know we got through the character creation process um and in that process i i noticed that uh this guy's wife was playing it seemed like just to humor him and it it very much showed in the uh the decisions or rather the the inability to decide that that she had at that in in the character creation and then um just just to 
kind of show everyone how the mechanics of the game would work because it's a it's a 2d20 system uh, which is something that i am not overly familiar with i've never played a 2d20 game before and uh these guys i don't think had played an rpg before or if they had it had been a long time uh the dm you know was very familiar with with rpgs but you know he he this is his first time gming in like five or six years he said so He's going to show us kind of how these mechanics are, are going to work in this game. And he assigns uh, the you know, the task. His wife says, okay, I'm going to try and pilot the shuttle to get us up to the ship that we're reporting to. And he goes, okay, uh, you need to roll 2d20 and add these two skills or attributes together. I, I don't remember exactly how the adventures, the Star Trek adventure system works. And she immediately goes, why? Which <laughs> I understand... Asking that question from a position of, okay, this is my first time playing a role-playing game. I want to know kind of what's what's behind the math here. What, you know, why do I have to roll for this? What, what am I rolling? What are you trying to determine here? Okay, but then she is trying to do something else, and he asks her to make another roll, and then she asks why again after the explanation's already been given. So all of this really to say, and and there's there's other other problems here. I'll, all of this to say, you need to understand what you're getting into when you go to play an RPG. There are a, a very few systems that are diceless. They exist. Some of them seem legitimately fascinating, like on uh, the Giant Beast cast uh, at the end of last year, they played this game called Anomaly that was kind of a, a role-playing game, but there were no dice, and it involved a, a tarot deck, and that seems very interesting, and a lot of a lot of these diceless systems are investigation based. Which, um, you know, if you're into that kind of stuff, it, they seem like they're very cool. But for the most part, when you are going to play an RPG, you are rolling dice. You are gonna have to roll dice to determine stuff because otherwise, you are just telling a story with your friends, which might be fun. I've never tried to sit down with my friends and just be like, "Hey, let's tell a story." Let's all gather around this table and, like, tell each other a story and try to collaborate on this story. I mean, it's, like, something that you do in, uh, in, like, elementary school with, uh, with the telephone game or something like that. And usually it ends up being about farts or, or poop or something like that, which will be apropos to the story in just a second. But to question why you have to roll every single time you question, to litigate every single roll... Just because maybe, you you know, the stats that you have on your sheet don't line up with, with what is being asked of you to perform this task, that is fundamentally missing the point of RPGs. And I recently listened to an episode of uh, Wizards of the Couch, which I'm actually going to have those guys on at the end of the month, uh, and they were interviewing Skeeter Green. And he was talking about how annoyed he gets when you tell people how to fun. And I completely agree with everything he said, but there's a certain point at which you're no longer telling someone how to fun, and instead you are explaining to them the mechanics of the game that they signed up to play, and if they fundamentally reject those mechanics, then that's a problem. Sitting at the table and, and agreeing to, to play one of these games is consenting to the rules of the game, and in a way to the authority of the dungeon master to referee and decide, you know, what is rolled or what is not rolled. And if you continually question that, then I'm going to have to question why you're playing. And I think the reason is because her husband asked her to. 
I don't have any insight into that. I don't know if maybe, you know, she, she really wanted to play and sat down at the table and just didn't get it because I've had that happen before. That that ended up happening very early on in my Saturday game. Uh, I had a player who was very excited to play, but once once she got a glimpse of what the game actually was, she started questioning pretty much everything in the game to the point where it didn't it no longer seemed fun. It didn't seem like what she signed up for. And I understand at that point, you know, if it's not what you thought it was and you feel like okay, now I have to remove myself from this. It's not what I thought it was. It's not as fun as I thought it would be. I understand. The game is not necessarily for everyone. Not everyone is going to enjoy this kind of entertainment. But realize, if you are insisting on playing a game, or you just agree to play a game, and you're sitting down and you're trying to litigate every single role that comes up, and this is for those of you who are veterans who love this thing and rules lawyer every single role that comes up. At a certain point, it's not fun anymore. At a certain point, you're taking away the fun from other people. And so this applies broadly, not just to, to new people who maybe are just getting their footing, just understanding the, the fundamentals of an RPG, but to those of you who are super rules lawyery, or as someone on Reddit once said, a rules district attorney, heaven forbid, arguing over roles or what needs a role or what doesn't need a role or what your character should be able to do in their sleep with one arm tied behind their back, it gets old very quickly. So get that out of your system early, talk it over with the dungeon master beforehand, but if you continue to bring that stuff up at the table, me personally, either as a player or as a dungeon master that has to deal with that shit, I am going to cut that off immediately. If I'm a player, I will remove myself from the table. I'll say, I don't want to sit here and listen to you guys argue. Or as a dungeon master, I'll say, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. If you aren't going to, you know, do what... If you're not going to roll when I ask you to roll, if you're not going to at least agree to that that basic agreement, whether or not you think it's fair, we can talk about later, but if you're not going to at least grant me that, if you're going to question every time I ask you to roll... I'm not going to want you at my table anymore, and odds are, no one else at the table is going to want you at my table. So, that's just one aspect of it. I thought this was going to be a short story. But the other aspect is, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Star Trek Adventures uh, role-playing game, it's, it's relatively recent. It is not a combat-driven role-playing game. That's because it's Star Trek-themed. It can be combat-driven, I guess, if that's, if that's the game you're looking for. But because it's Star Trek, it's largely based on interaction with other players, problem-solving, stuff like that. A lot of social stuff a lot of talking to each other. And the same player who was litigating every role, uh, at some point we were, uh, you know, we we were doing kind of that, that introductory thing where the GM was presenting us with uh, problems that we had to overcome just to teach us the mechanics of the game. I, I think I got to roll once because of all the litigation going on. But, you know, he, it was basically a, a situation for us to introduce ourselves. And with us three being the only PCs, I took this as a time for us to begin the initial socialization of our characters, you know, to, to begin to understand what our dynamic would be. And again, understanding that the other two players at the table either were not, well, they definitely were not regular, regular role players, um, and if they had played anything, it had been a while. I understand this. And sometimes role-playing can be a little uncomfortable at first or something you have to get used to. So I break the ice, and, you know, I introduce my character, Lieutenant Junior Grade 
Bradford Terran. And, uh, and I go, this is, uh, this is only my second assignment. And then the, uh, the rules district attorney at the table goes, uh, my character rips a huge fart. Lovely. All right, yeah. And then we get into my favorite part where she says, I don't want to talk in character. And the other player says, yeah, that's a little outside my comfort zone too. I understand that not everyone is going to roleplay the same way. Roleplaying, not everyone even wants to roleplay. Roleplay is just one aspect of the game. However, I'm not asking you to do a voice. I'm not asking you to have a deep, defined character. But when you're playing a game that's largely driven on character arcs and character interaction and problem-solving through the lens of your character, you have to be able to put yourself in that character and interact as that character would. If it's not currently in your comfort zone, you need to find a way to get there. You need to slowly integrate because that's the mechanics that you're playing with. That's that's the game in essence. Because you know, it's you can play pretty much any actually all editions of Dungeons and Dragons without ever caring about your character. You can do dungeon after dungeon after dungeon of just, you know, cutting things apart. You know, fighting, get the treasure, fight, get the treasure. I don't personally see the appeal of that, but I've talked to people who like it that way and don't want there to be any roleplay or any character in their games. For Dungeons & Dragons, that is perfectly valid. That is a, that's a fine play style if you want to go for that. If you don't want to roleplay your character, if you just want to say, I'm fighter McFight stuff and I hit it with my sword. Awesome. Or I'm a spell sling McGee and I just cast fireball at everything. Cool. That's a workable play style. But in a Star Trek game, in a game that's explicitly built around it's all about the arc that your character goes through, it's all about understanding who your character is at the beginning and then coming to a certain point later on where your character has changed and you have to interact with other characters to solve problems. You can't and shouldn't try to shoot everything or fight everything. That kind of view of role-playing is not compatible with that sort of game. Maybe, maybe you can make it work. Maybe I'm just set in my ways. That's entirely possible. Maybe I've just been spoiled by having two very great groups who, you know, love to roleplay and, you know, put themselves in the, in the shoes of their character and think like their character. But that doesn't seem to be a workable solution for this particular game style. I, I may very well be wrong. I fully admit it. I may very well just be, you know, the old man yelling at a cloud despite only being 24 years old. You know, I, I may be, I don't think I'm gatekeeping. Someone might tell me that I am. I, I don't know. But that does not seem like a, you know, workable way to run a game. And it's, it's going to be a challenge. I'm going to give it another try. I'm going to give it an actual session or maybe like two or three actual sessions where we, you know, try to move things forward and, and, and play the game and see if they come around to that, if they, you know, are able to adapt to the elements of the game that are, that are there and, you know, really play the game as it was, as it was meant to be played, I suppose, or, or play the game, play the game in a way that works with the mechanics that are presented in the book. I hope that happens. I hope we don't have to litigate every single role. I hope, you know, kind of that, that adversarial pushback 
from the the player the the one player the the rules lawyer and the gm stops i hope she just kind of figures okay we're we're playing this rpg i have to roll these dice because that's what he's telling me to do because that's how the game is played i hope we can we can get over that hump i hope we can get over the hump of not wanting to talk in character because i want to talk in character I put some thought into the background and the the story and who who Bradford Terran is coming on to the USS Blackburn for the first time. What are his goals? What's his motivation? How is he going to interact with his superiors? How is he going to interact with his peers? I hope that I'm able to, to explore that because I'm interested in doing it. I've never played a Star Trek RPG, and, you know, damn it, I'm excited. I want to see where this goes. I want to see how fun it is. Hopefully we can work through that, and I can lighten up a little bit, and they can, you know, take things a little bit more seriously, and, you know, come to a, a happy medium, and we can all you know, roll our dice and have fun while we drink beers and, and eat pizza. I hope. But that is, I mean, that's, that's what I hope for. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Maybe this will all fall apart in a couple sessions. Who knows? Anyway, that is it for story time this week. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention before we jump into the interview. I uh, have an email set up for the show now. And I am hoping that uh, you guys will be able to utilize this email and interact with me over email. And, you know, I'm hoping to, to kind of dedicate this first section of the podcast to answering your email questions. Uh, so that email, for those of you who want to know, is RolandBonesWithRyan at gmail.com. Once again, that is RolandBonesWithRyan at gmail.com. I will answer most any question. Uh, if I don't read your email, it's because I don't like your question. And I... Or... Not that I don't like your question, that I don't want to answer your question. There are certain topics that I don't feel like it's it's good to cover here on this kind of podcast. So if you're asking me about, like, my... Pol well, if you ask me about my political opinions, I'll answer on the show. I might as well. But if you want to ask me, you know, some some super personal questions about, you know, my personal life or anything like that, I'm, I'm not going to answer that on the show. That's not what this show is here for. I will answer any RPG-related question and some mild personal stuff. But yeah, once again, that is RolandBonesWithRyan at gmail.com. And if you want to shout at me in other ways, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on both Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, that is going to do it for this, uh, this very long intro that I'm recording right now. Uh, so let's give it up for Tim Mathias of the Knights and Nerds podcast and our conversation about what it takes to start becoming a game master. I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Roland Bones, the first returning guest. You all know him and love him. He is the dungeon master behind the Knights and Nerds podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Tim Mathias. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Excited to be back to do this Victory Lab with you. Absolutely. And in honor of your presence on the show once again, instead of the usual bourbon, I am drinking scotch. Ah, uh, my favorite. Got some, some Johnny Walker red and some Amaretto here. Johnny Walker, also also my favorite. One of these days I'm going to get myself a bottle of the uh, Johnny Walker White Walker <laughs> scotch. Absolutely. Gotcha. Well... Being the first uh, returning guest on Roland Bones, uh, this is the first time I'm not going to begin the episode with uh, the introductory questions, and uh, this is the first time I feel like 
I'm coming to an episode with a specific topic in mind for, for what we're going to discuss. Yeah, I think I would keep all my answers the same to those <laughs> questions anyways. Gotcha. I guess I've I've added a couple in in the intervening time since I started the show. So, um, I mean, do do you have a a least favorite RPG cliche? A least favorite RPG cliche. Mm-hmm. I'm not huge on prophecies. I think that's maybe a fantasy cliche in, in general. But like uh, RPG cliche, I think this has probably been said before. Uh, the, the sort of brooding loner type who somehow still finds himself part of a party. Tim has returned to Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard with a personal attack on me, the host. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying they can't be done well. I'm just saying in my experience, it's been less than fun. It's all right. That was that was my, my absolute very first character, so... I had the opportunity to to grow with that character and turn him into something else, so it's it's fine. And then I guess the other one that I recently added uh, that I'm just kind of curious about, <clears throat> is there a recurring NPC that makes its way into, if not every single game of yours, most games? Um, well, I want to say, like, yes, it hasn't been, he hasn't been recurring too much, though, Uh uh, I have a character that I'm playing right now whose name is Prosper Zongo. And that was a name that I got on a spam email. <laughs> and I had actually used that name before in my previous campaign for this really cowardly uh, wizard who ended up betraying the party. <laughs> and they killed him later on. It was a very satisfying death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after this campaign, like my my Prosper is uh, a lawful good your stereotypical lawful good life cleric, but after this campaign, I'm sure Prosper will return in some form. Is that your uh, your Chris Traeger cleric? That's him. Yeah, <laughs> I just love that that character idea. Yeah, he's he likes to go around uh, with the party getting into fights, and he just comes in and casts calm emotions, you know, to <laughs> to get everybody just to chill. So he really just believes in everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the the topic that we're kind of diving in with today, uh, and and this is, I guess this is the first episode of Rollin' Bones. It's it's been recently pointed out to me that this is a podcast that even kind of going beyond what I originally intended for this podcast. This is a podcast that very much appeals to people who are well into D and D. I was hoping that this would be something that would get people who had just gotten into D&D further into kind of the deep history and the, you know, the cool indie games and stuff like that that people have out there. But this is very much a show that appeals to people who kind of know what they're doing. But I feel like this episode is very much for newcomers because, Tim, today you and I are going to talk through different things that you might want to know or figure out when you are first deciding that you were going to take the plunge from player into dungeon master. Yeah, I'm excited. I think I remember being very nervous. Like the first time I was being a dungeon master, even though it was with like very close friends and that I had known for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Did you almost kill your party in your first session? 
I almost killed them with boredom. <laughs> killed them with frustration at my uh, like I th- I thought I was pretty familiar with the rules, but I found myself having to look stuff up like fifteen minutes into the game. But uh, but no, putting them in mortal danger wasn't uh, wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I think that's maybe a byproduct of it being fourth edition, where it's almost impossible to kill a, a character. <laughs> I almost killed a level one party by throwing too many orcs at them. Was that in uh, in fifth or an earlier edition? This was in fifth. Oh yeah, it doesn't take much. I had, and and this is something that we'll get into uh, in the game. I had too many players at my table. I had, I think there were eight or nine people, and so I thought eight or that, nine. That's yeah. that's crazy to me. That's. Yeah. That's two groups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> two yes. groups with one DM. And so I thought I can see why you wanted to end it. Yeah, I thought I, I I thought I have to make up for the fact that there's so many of them by throwing more orcs. And so it was a war boss, and then I think three of the like tougher orcs whose names I'm forgetting right now, and then like four of the regular orcs. And I had to uh Commit what I have now come to realize is a sin of dungeon mastering and and take a few of them off the board and say, okay, there's not really this many. I was mistaken. You guys are going to die if we continue on this course of action. Sometimes you got to course correct mid-fight, but at least, at least you made your party fear you right <laughs> out of the gate. Yep. I guess kind of starting out, we should maybe talk about what kind of person it takes to DM because DMing is a very demanding and very difficult job sometimes. So, Tim, what kind of personality do you think it takes to DM? Or what kind of personality maybe shouldn't DM? Hmm. That's a good question. Like, I feel like most people could run a game of D&D if they really wanted to. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, the, like, maybe approaching it like who shouldn't is... Is an easier is an easier way in. Mm-hmm. I, I think the role of the dungeon master is really only as difficult as the party makes it. Uh, I've mostly DM'd for friends. I've I have DM'd for strangers uh, on several occasions, and I think it went pretty well. I've found that what I would try to avoid is if I had like a really great idea. Or something that I thought was cool. And if if the players really weren't going for it, then going out of my way to try to f- force this idea to happen. Force this cool thing into the game. So I think if your personality is that you can't... I think the phrase is kill your darlings. Mm-hmm. If you can't, like move on maybe maybe put that really cool idea on the shelf for another day for another group uh i i think that might be a a good good place to start in terms of what who who shouldn't be a dm mm-hmm. but i guess like that kind of behavior you can hopefully hopefully get over but like i said i think most people most people can with the with the right group anybody can be a dm yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, as far as killing your darlings go, my uh, my Saturday night campaign is a very good example of this 
because uh, when we started the game, it was meant to be a political intrigue, we're on the brink of war, all this bad stuff is happening game. Uh, but my session on Saturday uh, made its way into a uh, brothel called Maja Bottoms, where they were having a chicken and waffle special <laughs> on uh, thighs and breasts. <laughs> and one of our party members, the bard, had a song battle with a turtle bard who sung uh, Adolescent Turtle Monks. Oh my goodness. And that was supposed to be your political intrigue game? Yep. All right. <laughs> I mean, it has... It reminds... Like, the, the setup of it reminds me of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Absolutely. But yeah, that's... That's one thing. If, if you are so committed to a certain tone or a certain... Uh, story or certain things happening in the game um or if you are one of those people who has to quote unquote win at dungeons and dragons then i will say maybe don't become a dungeon master at least until you can get past that stuff yeah that's a good call a very good call because even even now sometimes i feel like my my approach to the game can sometimes get a bit uh, myopic and I'm just like how do I how do I beat them yeah how do I beat <laughs> my party usually that comes as a result of them like really foiling something clever that I had thought of mm-hmm. so it doesn't it doesn't last too long but sometimes I am just really considering punishing them mercilessly and it's I mean it's a trap that we all fall into I, again at the beginning of that uh that Saturday campaign, I was upset that it wasn't turning out to be the political intrigue game that I wanted, uh, and and my players could tell. So I had to, I had to do some course correcting myself and how I approached the table and how I ran that game to to fit what would make my players happy. Yeah, I feel like if if all the players are having fun, but the dungeon master is not, then I think the dungeon master is, you know wanting to run a different kind of game mm-hmm. and maybe the, maybe the players don't want to play that game yeah so so that's kind of the onus is kind of on the dm to find a group that wants to that would have fun with the game that the dm wants to run mm-hmm. but if you know if you don't have time for multiple groups and if you've just got the one group then i guess it's kind of like up to the dm at that point to maybe adjust their expectations and Put that political intrigue on the shelf for yep. when you have a bunch of 007 fans over one day. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, oh, the last thing I want to say on this, uh, there's there's one personality type that absolutely under no circumstances ever should DM, and that is if you are extremely disorganized, just don't do it. I'll second that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're if you're a little bit disorganized, if your whole life and approach to everything is controlled chaos, you can make it work. But if you're super disorganized, can't remember anything, can't find anything, you're not going to be a good dungeon master. Do not attempt. I found that I've been having like multiple notebooks, multiple places where I write things down. Like I have, I have uh, a notepad. I have a little mos- uh like a little what do they call like moleskin. Yeah, yeah, one of those little ones, and then I have uh, everything in one note. So I have, I've got a lot of 
resources on the go, on the go where I keep everything written down. So that's an important thing if you're going to be a DM, write stuff down. Now, kind of moving on from that, um, getting into kind of a different aspect of DMing, uh, like like you've already said, uh, a big part of DMing is the party and the people that you have at the table. And uh, so basically this this next question that I have to, to kind of bring this in is, should you start with friends or should you start maybe with a group of, if not complete strangers, people you're not as comfortable with? So having, having done both, I, I think there's pros and cons to each. Um, like with your, you know, with, with a group of friends, they're going to be pretty forgiving, I would imagine. Um, although, I mean, it, you'd have a, I think you'd have some bad luck if you had more than one person or maybe even one person in, in a group of, uh, of strangers who is really critical of you. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I mean, certainly it happens. Everyone goes on, like we've all read those stories on the D and D subreddit. Um, but the, the times that I've run for strangers, I've sort of had talks with them beforehand and have sort of gone over like what what their play style is like what do they enjoy do they enjoy combat do they enjoy role playing do they kind of like to take a more passive role and just kind of observe stuff that's going on and and chip you know chime in when they want to so i think if you get a handle on what people's expectations are and how they how they approach the game then I think you could do really well with a a group of strangers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The one thing I'll say, so I kind of lean towards DMing for a group of people you're familiar with. um, But that is purely from a comfort standpoint. If like, if you have anxiety about talking to, to people that you don't know, which a lot of people do struggle with, if you have stage fright or anything like that, being a DM is very much, in a lot of ways, a performance. So being around people who, you know, already know you can can be a, a big comfort when it comes to doing your first session. Um, that being said, whether you're starting with people you know or strangers, uh, the one thing I'll say that is ideal, not necessary, but very, very ideal, have someone at the table who is familiar with the rule set that you're running just in case you mess something up or you have new players at the table. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Having another player who can who is well versed in the rules who can sort of help those new players along so you're not you know running the game and also giving a tutorial at the same time for for absolutely everybody would be a big help. And then Kind of going off what, what you said earlier, it is very important, whether you're starting with friends or strangers, to set expectations uh, for your players about, you know, the way that your game, the way that you envision your game and uh, behaviors at the table that you m- maybe won't be as tolerant of or, or maybe you just outright don't want at your table. Tim, you still there? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Uh yeah, uh, I do have, I guess, something that I can say about that um, in terms of setting expectations. Uh, and this was DMing for 
uh, some people that I didn't really know very well. Uh, one person at the table did not enjoy Undead, and I kind of sprang some Undead into the game, and uh, it was right n- near an end of one of our sessions, and I didn't notice that anything was off with this player, but then I got a message from one of the other players later saying, oh, so-and-so is really just uncomfortable with Undead in, in the game period. And I didn't really pry in terms of like asking why, or I didn't say, "Oh, well, that's silly" or anything like that. Like people, I'm sure, I'm sure this player had a reason perfectly valid to them, but I didn't think to ask about that sort of thing before we before we sort of got a couple weeks into this into this game. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a big problem for me to adjust, but I mean, that was, I think. Um, you know, an un- unpleasant experience for that one player that could have been avoided. Yeah, absolutely. And and part of that, both as, you know, as a DM, you should outline kind of this stuff is going to be in my game or this stuff might come up. Um, but again, as players, for those of you out there who are, are just content to be players, um, when you're starting a new campaign, it's important to if you have a new dungeon master, tell them or remind them of maybe some things that you aren't necessarily comfortable with exploring in an RPG setting. And as dungeon masters, something that I found uh, to be very helpful, when you're thinking of how you envision your game, um, in your mind, try to assign it like a rating, like a, a video game or a movie. Like, this is going to be a PG-13 campaign, or this is going to be an R-rated campaign, or whatever it is for, for whatever country you're in. I know the rating system is widely different, even in, like, the UK, and I think uh, I think even you guys up in the Great White North have, have different ratings from what we have in, in the States. Yeah, so I mean, if something's like for a, a young but still mature audience, it's one moose. If it's rated <laughs> R, it's a, it's a wolverine, mm-hmm. and then if it's for acceptable for all audiences, ironically, it's a beaver. <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> and uh, the the newspapers give uh, give movies ratings uh, one to five mounties. <laughs> you know, no joke. I I took a picture of uh of my local newspaper a couple years ago because the front page was yellow lights, stop, go or panic. <laughs> Some days it's just like very slow news. Mhm. Absolutely. Gotcha. Well, once you've established kind of your uh, you know, your expectations what what kind of things you like in in your game or what kind of content you and your players are okay with uh the next big question to to kind of answer is what are you going to do what are you going to run uh are you going to start with a one shot do you want to jump into a full campaign uh so so tim what are your thoughts on this for a first time dm should you dive in headfirst into a full campaign or maybe try to cut your teeth on a one shot you know looking back at the very first time that i i ran a game i wish it had been a one shot or at least like a very small self-contained story mm-hmm. uh, i think that gives you the benefit of finding out you know 
even if even if you're playing with friends, it gives you an insight into how certain people respond to certain aspects of the game. And really, like I said before, I thought that I was pretty familiar with the rules when I started that first uh, game. Turns out not so much. So if you're running like a, like a one-shot or even something that you're going to play over maybe two or three sessions, it's going to sort of highlight to you, the Dungeon Master, the things that you don't know or maybe would like to get more well acquainted with. Yeah, this is one of those, um, one of the many moments where you should not do what I have done, because my first session was the first session of what ended up being a two-year campaign that was a prequel to the campaign that we were all playing in beforehand. So yeah, don't do that. Start with a (laughs) one-shot. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's sound advice. Because one of the most valuable skills you can have as a dungeon master is to be able to produce something or or run something that's fun in a single night. Don't rely on everyone being there the next day to wrap up the story threads that you have. Because when it came time for me to run a one-shot, I was very bad at it because I didn't know how to move the story along and pace things out so that fun can be had in one session. (laughs) And something else that I just thought of, try running the same one shot for a couple different groups. Mm. You know, that way you can get much more familiarized with the material that you're working with. It's going to boost your confidence as a result. And then it's going to give you a better idea of, you know, the wide variety of, of players out there and how they all approach the game differently. Absolutely. Especially if you're going to take it to a convention, but that is a whole different ballpark. So kind of along the same vein, once you decide, you know, campaign one shot, what are you going to do at that point? You have another important decision to make. And that is, are you going to homebrew something or are you going to run something out of a module? And this is one where I feel like there's, Actually, pretty good arguments for both sides, and then both sides also have pretty uh, pretty good counter-arguments against the other. So, so Tim, what, what are your thoughts on this? So, I, I may not be able to contribute as much as I'd like on this one, because I've never run any published modules before. <laughs> I've only ever like made up my own stuff and, and run with that. And I find because if a, if a player asks a question about like lore or you know some some story thread or wants to um you know explore some aspect of the game that I haven't planned out I can make something up on the spot and that may very well be something that you can still do with established settings uh but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like that may you may run the risk if you're if you're going to Im- improvise on the fly, in terms of lore, uh, and other things like that, that you might end up contradicting yourself later, or you might come across something in a, in in the module that says something contrary to what you've already stated to your table. Yeah, running a homebrew world is one of the easiest counters to kind of metanology stuff that your players might throw out. Like, if you've got someone who's, again, very familiar with the rule set that you're running, and a certain monster shows up, 
and they go, oh, I know, that's a mind flare, and it's got resistances to this, this, and this, and it's vulnerable to this, and it can do this, and you're just like, well, way to go. You you blew my encounter. <laughs> but in a homebrew world, you can go, not necessarily, even if that's the case. That's right. Even, you can always pivot. Yep. I don't think that's how that works here. <laughs> and then it, just go on to show that's exactly how that works here, because you're going out of the monster manual. And another but, thing with like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. One other thing that I thought of is, is that some some settings are very rich, but it's it's also kind of a big burden on the, on the dungeon master to read a fairly expansive uh, book um, about a setting for you to become familiarized with it. Yeah, if you are running anything in Forgotten Realms and you've read none of Forgotten Realms, um, may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> Especially if you have players who are hardcore fans of that setting, because they're going to start asking questions about, ooh, is Dritz Duerden around? Or are, are we going to run into Wolfgar? Or just endless stuff, throwing out names you may not even know. And yeah, just... If you're going to run something in an established setting, you are setting up some extra work for yourself. But then again, if you're doing a completely homebrew setting, you might also be setting up yourself for uh, extra work. Because there's a trap that writers and creators often fall into. That's the world-building trap. That is a trap that I've fallen into many times. Now now that we're talking about it, I mean, if if I can mentioned something that i had heard on a different podcast i'm so i don't want to be buzz marketing a different podcast on your <laughs> podcast ryan it's all right uh just giving me more guests for the future yeah so there's a there's a podcast that i've uh listened to some episodes of called the dungeon master's block and what they would do is use magic the gathering cards for inspiration and there's i think i think there's still a website where you can go and get a randomly generated magic card and you just hit refresh and it just gives you another one over and over. So what they would do is they would, they would collect or, or view uh, a number of randomized magic cards. And then they would try to tie like, you know, 10 of them together to make a, like a setting and a hook, which I thought was really neat. And you can do that as well for creating like your own, if you wanted to homebrew some of your own magic items. Uh, but I thought that that was really neat. They have some pretty neat episodes on, like, as they're sort of going through some randomized magic cards just while they're recording and then coming up with something on the fly. It's pretty neat. And one thing that's really useful for, for world building, um, and again, this is putting a lot of the onus on your players, but... Build out your loose structure, have a good idea of what the plot hooks are, you know, what the main thrust of the adventure is going to be, but then leave enough open spaces that your character, your your party members can fill in kind of those blank spaces with their backstories and then provide you with more ammunition for moving the plot forward and getting them hooked into the adventures that you have planned. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that, and I think that I think that was one of the next bullet points on the thing that we the list of things that we're going to talk about. Uh, I had a couple of of people that I, I've been wanting to start a game with, um, and they have 
made their characters and they have apparently a very uh, interesting backstory. And I've not planned anything about the, the world. I'm going to read their backstory and then, and then use that as my like framework to build the world around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's absolutely a, a, a great way to, to do things because I mean, sometimes what I like to do is I will give kind of a general background of what, what the world is like, uh, magic level, that kind of stuff, background of what all the, uh, all the other races are up to, and then kind of let the players go with that little bit of information. But even then, sometimes you just get some kind of crazy stuff from your players that, that might not fit with your ideas. So the, the idea of letting your players kind of shape the world first and then you write around them, that's something that I definitely want to try sometime in the future. Well, if I get to it first, I'll let you know how hard I fail. Absolutely. I mean, if I had let my first group of players essentially kind of mold the the world with their backstories, then uh, I think Austin actually mentioned this on his episode. There would have been a, a, a merfolk bard who dressed up in a bunny suit in my world. And... <laughs> that is that is something that I can't get out of my head now. <laughs> he called himself DJ Floppy Ears. <laughs> and he was chaotic evil. Oh, boy. <laughs> How long ago was that? So this was, oh god, this was four years ago. I can tell, I can tell by how your voice shakes that it's still like a fresh trauma. That was, it was one of those things where it was my first time DMing. Like I said, it was a prequel to uh, my friend Muhammad's campaign that that he, he was running, and we were all in. And I was like, okay, this is set during my character and that campaign's backstory. His family is still in power, and you're you're kind of coming to the end of this this old and evil empire. And essentially, you guys are going to be in the middle of a power struggle for the fate of the continent. And that's how I set it up. And then Austin goes, I'm going to play a merfolk bard that dresses in a bunny suit. And I was just immediately crestfallen. <laughs> was it a cursed bunny suit? No. Fortunately, well, I say fortunately, but now, you know, knowing Austin a lot better and and seeing where some of his characters went, maybe it's not fortunately. Maybe I actually missed out on something entertaining. But that that character never actually made it to the table. He was talked out of it by Muhammad, who was saying, okay, maybe, maybe pump the brakes a little bit on the first time DM. And Austin was like, okay, all right. No bunny suit. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Instead, he showed up with the always iconic Bron Bronzebeard of the Bronzebeard Lantern Company. <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. That is a like a very nice name. It's got some good alliteration to it. Easy to remember. So I guess to kind of close the loop on this, um, I, having only really run one published module myself, there's only one module that I could pretty much recommend to any first-time dungeon master in specifically in fifth edition D&D. If you're running another uh, setting or another uh, system, then I have to recommend homebrew because I've not run any Deadlands modules or 
Pathfinder modules or anything like that. But if you are starting out first time playing 5th edition and you have a bunch of new players, uh, The Lost Minds of Fandelver is an absolutely brilliant starting point for you. It, it's a legitimately good adventure. Uh, it It really introduces kind of the mechanics and just the way that I guess 5th edition D&D is meant to be played. All of that comes out really beautifully in Lost Minds of Fandelver. But if you're not necessarily interested in that, homebrew. Definitely go for homebrew. And moving on from there, there's there's one other thing that I want to talk about. And this is kind of a, as you get things going and, and kind of get to know your players, uh, this is another resource I want to shout out. Matt Colville made an absolutely brilliant video on the different kinds of players in Dungeons and & Dragons. And I view that as essential viewing for anyone who is new to DMing or even, you know, you've been DMing for a while and you just haven't seen it. The way he breaks down the different kinds of players that show up at the table, it's it's brilliant and... It, it it amazes me how accurately he was able to to just kind of pinpoint all the different kinds of players and, and what they come to the table for or what they maybe bounce off of in Dungeons & Dragons. And it's something that's very important to, to keep in mind as you're running sessions. I have seen that video, and it's kind of eerie how how perfectly he describes, like, the people in my group right now on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can't remember. It's been it's been a few months since I've seen the video. But is it the is it the the tactician one of them? Yes. So I think that's Tom, mm-hmm. because uh, Candace will tell me that sometimes Tom is hashing out ideas with them before I arrive to the game. Is <laughs> like, okay, here's my idea, but don't tell Tim. <laughs> uh, and uh, Candace, of course, is the is the actor and then Matt I think it's funny how he's he's kind of dead in between and then Katie's the sort of like the casual gamer. Yeah, I remember um Candace and I were talking one time and I shared that video with her because she was kind of talking about that and I said, "Well, have you seen have you seen this video?" and she said, "No, I haven't." And so I shared it with her and she was like, "I think I understand Tom now." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that is absolutely a uh a resource that you should uh, start with. So, you have your party. You know what you're going to run. The next step here is session zero. Session zero is vital for your game. It is where you set expectations. It's where you get the expectations of your players. It's where characters are created. And I also like to use it as the, at the very end, the last... 30-ish minutes, that's where you run the everyone meets in a tavern part. Uh, so, so Tim, what do you think goes into making a good session zero? Well, drawing on my uh, immense experience of that one session zero that I did uh, <laughs> with with the the, uh, the podcast folks, what we did, mm-hmm. we, we came together, I think everybody sort of had an idea of, of what they wanted to play beforehand. Uh, I don't think Candace will play anything other than a bard ever again. <laughs> uh, but what we did was we kind of, well, I guess everyone went over what their character was uh, or, or their class. And then I kind of it gave as much of the setting as I could, like a reasonable 
amount of information that wasn't too overwhelming. And I can't recall, some people might have had some ideas of, of their, their flaws and bonds and, and things like that. But I think we really refined those when they heard like what the setting was going to be like. Uh, and, and they, you know, modified their, their history a little bit to, to really fit in with the world. And it kind of made, made them like buy into the campaign right from the get go because like, Oh, okay. My guy was in this big cataclysmic war and, you know, I know where I fit in in society now, which is like, if you're just going into a game blind, you don't really have that connection to the, to the setting yet. Uh, so we talked about that, talked about the, the backstory talked about actually how a couple of them already knew each other uh one character of course uh was new to everybody so there was no through line for for Faye, but there was sort of a through line for the other three mm-hmm. now i didn't actually get to run the meetup moment the getting the party together moment but it was it was really great in sort of helping solidify f- for th- for the players their their feeling like it's almost like getting them immersed ahead of time even like before you start playing mm-hmm. it was really great and we also talked about um like their character arcs like where where do you see your character ending up by the time this is all done like how do you see your how do you see i guess it's tough to answer that when they don't really know what the problem is going to be but you know i think some players like to have an arc that they would like to see their character go through even before you're too deep into the campaign so we mm-hmm. talked a bit about that too now, are you a point by slash standard array guy, or do you like rolling for stats? You know what i i i I haven't. I don't know if I've explicitly told the group that they can't roll for stats, but I've been i've I've told them that I prefer point by or the mm. the the preset numbers. I f- I feel like if memory serves, like back to when I was a teenager, which was quite some time ago. Uh, that when you're when you're rolling for stats, someone's gonna have real bad rolls and someone's gonna have real good ones, and so there's gonna be some off off balance characters in the party, mm-hmm. which maybe can be really fun. But I I tend to favor either point by or the array. Yeah, I I mean you guys have heard me talk on the show recently about how I I want to at some point roll up stats for my own personal character, maybe even do it in order. Um, but I will say, one, if you're going to roll stats, all stats are rolled at the table because it's a very old problem in Dungeons & Dragons of people showing up with their character sheets going, I don't know how I did it, but I rolled three 18s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then one thing about uh, rolling, uh, unless your players ask otherwise, don't make them roll their stats in order because, like Tim said, everyone kind of comes to the table with an idea of what class they want to play, what kind of character, and the second someone goes, I want to be a fighter, and they roll an eight strength, they just aren't going to have fun anymore. They'll be like Steve Rogers, only with without the, the enhancement. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's really all it is for, for Session Zero, character creation. If you have new players, um, make sure that you kind of walk through the process with them. My last session zero that I did with uh, my... Actually, the last session zero I did was with my Dark Sun group, and they're all veterans. Um, but the one that I did with my Saturday group, uh, it was my wife and then two other, or uh, three other players, 
my wife and one of the players were brand new and then the other two had only played like five times. I had to go around the table and basically explain to them everything that their characters were getting. So that might be an aspect of your session zero if you have a bunch of new players is going through the books and saying, okay, this means this. And for some of your players, it might be this means this, which means this, which means this, which means every time you roll, you add this number to it. Sometimes there's a lot that goes into the explanations in session zero. <laughs> With that out of the way, um, the next thing that's that's kind of up is uh, different preferences that dungeon masters have for running the tables. And, and this goes from everything from house rules to whether or not you play music to how you do combat. So, uh, Tim, what are some house rules that you like to do at your table? So one house rule that I can't take credit for actually coming up with, uh, but that I've started to employ has to do with a critical hit. There's nothing in my mind more disappointing than getting a natural 20 and then you roll the damage die and you roll really, really low, like really Mm -hmm. poorly. And you do less damage than you would do like on a normal hit with average rolls. So... What I've done is uh, if someone rolls a crit on an attack, uh, they they get the maximum amount of damage from their normal damage die, whatever that happens to be, and then they roll a second time and add that on top. Yeah, I, I actually do the same thing. The only, and it's not really a downside, uh, you just have to plan for it. The only time where that becomes a problem is with a rogue, because if you crit on sneak attack... That's a lot of damage. Yeah, Tom has had a couple of, of crits with a sneak attack, and uh, so the numbers are are unpleasant. Now, I did see, funnily enough, I did see that there was a, a post on Reddit about like a thread of people's house rules, so I wrote down a couple. Can I share? Sure. And I, I wish I could attribute to all the various users, but here's, here's a couple that I um, really liked. Um, one suggestion was for a player that drops to zero immediately makes a death saving throw not waiting for their turn but like right when it happens actually a couple of these have to do with death saving throws maybe these are just uh really salty dms who came up with these uh another had to do with failed death saving throws only reset after a short or long rest and if you're a player and you're making death saving throws you don't announce your results at to the table which i feel like could at another element of, of su- suspense. Uh, I think that there was a really popular post uh, a, f- a few months back, sometime last year, uh, the I know a guy rule, where if the party is facing a really problematic uh, part of the story, like a, a problem that they're not quite sure how to solve, every player has, I mean, in a group of nine, this would be ridiculous, but every player has one time use that they can go i know a guy and that they know and then that creates somebody in their backstory who can somehow help them solve this problem i i like all of those i recently um my my nightmare beast session in dark sun where by design the players could not win that encounter we had a situation where someone actually brought up that death saves thing about why do you de- why do your death saves reset every time you get back up, and so that's definitely going to be a house rule moving forward. Is those don't reset until you've had a, a long rest. 
But I really like that rule of don't announce your results to the table because that gets very metagamey very quick. Mm-hmm. Your, your yeah. cleric or your bard or your paladin, as soon as they hear he's failed two death saving throws, you know what they're going to do next turn. And on the, on the flip side, if they're like, oh, well, I've passed two and I don't have any fails, the party knows that they have so many actions that they can take, so many turns before they really have to start thinking about their, their fallen ally. Whereas if they really don't know that they have to act fast. Um, there was one other one, if I can if I can just throw it in here. Go for it. Uh, it was, and again, I wish I could give a, a shout out to whoever created this, but uh, someone had recommended imposing disadvantage on a creature who is just picking up like their weapon uh, and going to attack in the same turn. Because you can disarm somebody, like the, the battle master has the ability to disarm an opponent, but that really doesn't do anything unless like somebody comes along and also like takes the weapon away so it doesn't really impose any any sort of penalty on the person who's been disarmed because mm-hmm. on the next turn they just reach over pick up their weapon and they're, they're good to go yeah what i like to do is i say that picking up a weapon is half your movement but i do like that idea of if you have to pick up your weapon and then stand up and then attack disadvantage i think mm-hmm. that's better than half your movement because a lot of players are just like, oh, I wasn't going to move anyway. Yeah, I mean, either of those solutions are better than nothing. So yeah, the, the other two things to, to kind of talk about here are uh, the way you run combat and then music or no music. Uh, music is very simple. If you have music that you like, play it. Uh, be very conscious of the volume, though. Uh, if it's too loud, you might have to yell at your players. Yeah, I love having music at the table and uh, i'm sure i'm not the only one out there who likes to use it but uh tabletopaudio.com like sorry to keep giving shout outs to all these different <laughs> <laughs> different people but tabletop audio is an amazing resource it's, it's like so cool and and really easy to find something that is really fitting to to whatever situation that you're in and then uh the last aspect of this uh how to run combat. This deals specifically with theater of the mind versus tactical combat. And what I have to say about this is if you don't have a mat, you don't have miniatures, don't worry. Uh, Just start out running theater of the mind. Um, You might find that you like it better. What I will say though, is that when you try tactical combat, it's really hard to go back. Yeah. The other, the other uh, week we were, uh, we were recording and I wanted to use a, a a map, but our table is not uh, sufficient for an actual mat, and we don't have. Uh, well, sorry, we we do have miniatures. I don't have miniatures for monsters. I suppose I could use skittles or whatever. But uh, what I did was I took a, an aerial picture of a like a ter- terrain, uh, just a JPEG off of uh, off of Google. And then I made it semi-transparent and put it into an Excel spreadsheet. And then we had that on the TV while we were playing, and I was just moving the... Like, I would just sort of put in into a cell somebody's name or the character's name, and then they would just move however many feet, mm-hmm. which was really enjoyable, actually. And if you're going to have, like, a, a much more uh, complex uh, environment and you want your party to be able to take advantage of things like cover and differing heights from one side of the map to another and difficult terrain, stuff like that. I feel 
if 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 you're wanting to incorporate all those elements, uh, it, it's easy for a player to get overwhelmed if they don't have some kind of visual reference. Uh, and that's a good thing that uh, that Roll Twenty is great for, or uh, Virtual Tabletop, or anything like that. It, it, that's not just for people who are playing in online games. Uh, that's a good resource even for uh, for people who are playing in person. If you just have like a TV or a computer screen that you can show to people and be like, okay, this is what the map looks like. This is where you guys are. It's a good, it's a good tool to use. And then, and I'm going to have to bring Josh on again just to talk about terrain because... The man has absolutely gotten me addicted to using terrain. Um, be very careful with that, because that is, again, a trap for your money. <laughs> oh, yeah. Back back when I was playing Warhammer on a just a completely barren dining room table, I'd be like, you know what? I need some terrain. Rocks and trees and ruins and such. And you don't stop until you have no dining room table left. I, I just emailed Josh an image of the map for uh, the first level of the dungeon that we're doing on Wednesday, and I just know when I walk into his house on Wednesday, there's just going to be this amazing, even better than the map that I sent him, piece of terrain sitting on the table, and I'm just going to be like, oh my god. And then every time I uh, start setting up the map for my Saturday game, I'm just like, I wish I had terrain. And then I look at my apartment, and I'm just like, I don't have the space for all that terrain. <laughs> so yeah, that is uh, definitely some some preferences that you can have. I'd like to talk about homebrew monsters and items, but that's like two episodes in and of itself. So that that will need to, to kind of be put off for a little bit, uh, especially... There's a couple things that I I really want to get to here as we're kind of running up against the end of our time. Uh, and this first one is an issue that no Dungeon Master wants to deal with, but unfortunately sometimes we have to deal with it, and that's dealing with problems at the table. So, so Tim, when do you feel like it's it's time to start having those difficult conversations with maybe a problem player? Um, I feel like if... if... More than one person, or even, let me rephrase that. If they're starting to impact the fun of others at the table with, you know, whatever kind of behavior, if it's, if it's you know, they're too uh, focused on the rules and correcting people, if they're sort of monopolizing the, uh, the attention of, of the DM to the detriment of anyone else. Yeah, I feel like when it starts impacting the fun and... To the point where people aren't just having less fun, but they're not having, like, if they're having almost no fun, mm-hmm. then, you know, then either the, 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 there needs to be sort of, you know, a calm conversation about, you know, what needs to change. Um, I mean, it's entirely possible that if you're just starting with a group, then, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that group dy- dynamic just, just won't work but i feel like maybe this kind of goes back to close to the very beginning of, of the conversation is is uh, you know your duty as as the dm is to set the not only the expectation of the content of of your game but of the expectation of the behavior of everyone at the table so i think if you if you set that uh expectation let everybody know what you will and will not tolerate in terms of their behavior uh, towards like 
subject matter in the game and their behavior to each other, uh, hopefully you won't have to deal with any of these problems. Yep, and sometimes um, not only can these conversations be awkward or hard, especially if you're a person who doesn't like confronting people, um, sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes they can be ineffective, and sometimes you will have repeat offender players where it gets to the point where no one's having fun and you may have to ask a player to leave which no one wants to do no one wants to deal with that but it's something that unfortunately a lot of people have to deal with and so you need to know kind of when your players are being impacted by this problem player or these problem players when the problems are persisting, when there's no sign that they're making any effort to change their behavior. And at that point, if if they're not trying to change and everyone's still upset, at that point, uh, unfortunately, you, you might have to ask someone to leave. Yeah, if your options are keep the problem player and everyone else becomes more and more unhappy. I mean, you've got one of two results. Either the rest of the group is going to leave or you ask nicely this this one person to leave seems kind of like an easy choice and then the the last thing about this that i want to talk about is kind of turning the spotlight on yourself a little bit and and how to deal with criticism that's coming from your players or if maybe you find that that you might be a problem and so um tim i feel i think you've actually addressed this on the podcast you you've had times where your players have have kind of criticized the way that you handle encounters correct uh yeah yeah there was there have been times where one i think one encounter specifically was uh i think not enjoyable uh and it had to do i think with a mixture of the way that i set it up and and some actions taken by some of the players so it was kind of it was kind of a, a group effort fail mm-hmm. uh <laughs> but uh i don't do it often enough but i sh- have done in the past and probably should again um you know it, it, don't be afraid of of criticism if you're an experienced dungeon master or um if you're just starting out this, this is if someone's offering you uh feedback then they're essentially telling you like they're they're trying to to make you better that's kind of how i look at it uh, this particular encounter i like my takeaways were okay i made this scenario with a very i thought it was pretty straightforward but i guess with for, for the players cuz like i said uh like we do theater of the mind and and i had incorporated things like cover and uh, differing heights and difficult terrain, everyone was kind of confused as to where they were, uh, who they were next to and stuff like that. So it was, it was kind of not a great way to even start the encounter. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of learned from that point, you know what, like they're, they're not, that's not the aspect of the game that they most enjoy. And so it's worthwhile as, as a dungeon master to, to check in with your players, ask them, you know, okay, we've been playing for X amount of time, what like what aspects of the game have you really liked? What have you disliked? Uh, have, have there been things that we haven't done that you would like to do to incorporate? So I mean, as as long as your players are being respectful in terms of of how they're approaching you with feedback or even a complaint, uh, don't take it personally. Everyone's just it's it's everyone's just there to have fun, 
And, you know, sometimes you just have to, yeah, make an adjustment at, from your own point of view. Yeah, it's very important to, to kind of see where your players are at with the game. Um, you know, ask them what I did. The first time I did that was I said, what's your favorite part of the game? What's your least favorite part? And then um, are you enjoying this? And then the last question was, what can I do to make it more fun for you? Yeah, I remember uh, asking asking my group right now, uh, not long ago. I think it was actually during the like the group discussion that we recorded, both things that they did like versus things that they didn't. And th- through some part of the earlier campaign, I thought I was being very railroady, like very like keeping them sort of confined to a specific set of events. Go here, talk to this person. Go here, get this thing. And I I thought like I was stifling them. They weren't complaining about it, but. I just felt like I was guiding them too closely. And then after a certain point, things like really opened up and I was kind of like, just like, okay, go. And, and then there was kind of like this indecision that descended on them. This, this feeling of, of, well, what do we do? They're kind of like in this complex situation. And so I guess it just goes to show you, like sometimes you think that something in the campaign is bad, but maybe, like for my group in this example, like a helping hand, it's not always a bad thing. Now, the the last thing that we should talk about uh, for this evening is uh, the idea of planning versus improvising. And with that comes, like, like Tim has already alluded to, the railroad versus the sandbox. And so one thing that I feel like is very important to convey is that no plan survives contact with the PCs. Yes, very true. Very true. Um, I feel like nowadays it's more, uh, it's easier than ever for a new or experienced dungeon master to equip themselves with a lot of, if I can call them back pocket resources, mm-hmm. uh, to plan, like just so that you're prepared for, for a lot of eventualities. Um, like you can plan certain story elements that your players may or may not get to. If they want to sort of suddenly veer left and go exploring into like a forest environment, for example, uh, if you've got like a document saved with with links to various resources like uh, forest encounters, NPCs, uh, landmarks, points of interest, uh, it, you know, it can really it can really just take that burden away from you having to suddenly think of something on the spot. Yep. And, and even, even, um, is it Xanathar's guide that has the, uh, like the big list of, of random randomized encounters based on, on terrain. Uh, that is Volo's guide. It's Volo's. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's great too. Yeah. Random encounter tables are always good to have. Uh, one thing I'll say here, anything, any vital information for moving the plot forward any anything that needs to happen, don't leave it up to chance. Don't leave it up to a roll. Because the second you do that, your person with that skill, your ranger who has to track this uh, this guy who got away, is going to roll a two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if there's yeah if there's if there's a a pivotal moment in your game, you always have to ask uh, two equally important questions. What happens if they fail, or sometimes even worse, what happens if they succeed? That's why uh, on on again with the the what happens if they succeed. 
uh, don't leave your big bad evil guy in a situation where he can be prematurely killed. Yep, yep. I, I, you know what? I'm I'm dying for my party <laughs> to actually face the big bad evil guy, and they're just they're just dancing around. So I'm I'm kind of having the opposite problem. Maybe they maybe they sense the uh, the the coming storm. I won't say what the coming storm is on this podcast, uh, so that your your players can actually listen to it. But we we've talked about some crazy things that that could be coming down the pipe, and maybe they there's some premonitions of of the the evil that they will have to deal with in the the coming episodes. I I can't wait to unleash hell. I'm just <laughs> tapping my fingers. Yeah, but one thing uh, that's important to to remember is, uh, I mean, like Tim said, that that sandbox versus the railroad. There are certain aspects of the game, like we said, if something vital needs to happen, it needs to happen. Um, so there, it's it's okay to sometimes have sections on rails, but if your players feel like they're constantly being pushed in one direction regardless of what they choose if you're only giving them an illusion of choice or worse no choice at all uh your players will notice and a lot of times they won't be happy about it so if something needs to be on rails if like you you do what i did in that dark sun session and you have something that the players are not supposed to defeat be careful of overusing that and then on the opposite end uh with the sandbox uh, don't leave it so open that your players have no idea what to do, because that can lead to some very boring sessions. Yeah, I've actually like the the part of of our campaign that we're doing right now. I've actually had Candace say a couple times. I think we just needed a push in one direction or another, mm-hmm. and sometimes a group needs that. And so, like giving giving them freedom is is great but if it comes at the expense of of the campaign just kind of grinding to a halt there's nothing wrong with planting a hook right in front of them one thing that i've done with my saturday game was i actually gave them uh multiple hooks at one point and kind of let them decide which way to go with them uh but what i did kind of behind the scenes which they are now uncovering so it's it's okay if i say this the hooks that they decided to follow, things changed about them based on the order that they took the hooks in. They essentially had a moment, uh, once they finished Fandelver, they had a moment of, you guys can go to the east and do this thing over here, or you can go to the west and there's this thing going on over here. They went east, and right now they're dealing with the consequences of not going west. But had they gone west, then they'd be going east now and dealing with the consequences of going west first. So you gave them a scenario where they were forced to choose between two, like, either choice had consequences on the other Mm -hmm. side. Yes. Yeah, I mean, those were really interesting choices. Yeah, like, something that uh, one of my other DMs, uh, Ashley, who's who's been on the show before, something that she did with her game uh, before I left was all of our quests had a timer. It was a reasonable timer, but she didn't want us to be just kind of messing around raising chickens while while the the evil the evil guys were gaining all this power and influence in, in the realm. Uh basically if we didn't do something within a timely fashion, uh 
doors would close. So that's pretty ambitious for a DM uh, to to plan out a story like that, and that's really, I think, a good motivator for uh, a party to to take interest in in being really engaged in the story. And then the the last thing I have to kind of say about improv and planning and and sandboxes and railroads is it's good to have a plan and it's good to it's good to be able to improv uh but based on the the kind of group that you have you will notice that you will need to rely more heavily on one than the other and my two groups right now are a good example of this i feel like i need to plan for what happens in the wednesday game but I feel like I only need a very loose idea of what they're going to encounter on Saturdays because whatever I plan, they're going to do something silly. And (laughs) it's best if I just kind of leave it open so that they can do something silly in the direction of the loose idea that I had rather than me trying to get them to follow a specific path and them doing something silly. So yeah, that is pretty much a good place to start. Everything with DMing is going to be a learning process. So even if you listen to this episode in its entirety and write down every single word that Tim and I have said, you're still going to find that it's different at your table, because it's different at every table. And even when you've been DMing for four to five years like I have, or... uh, Tim, how long have you been DMing again? Um, oh boy. Uh, how how long has 5th edition been out? It's been around five years now. Uh, I'd say getting on to eight or nine years. So if you've been DMing, you know, five years, nine years, or even, you know, I've played with guys who've been playing for 15, 20, 25, 30 years even. Even... 30 years on, you're still going to be picking things up and learning things and, and having to adapt, improvise, and overcome, as as Bear Grylls would say. <laughs> yeah, he was talking about D&D when he said that, right? <laughs> yep, absolutely. So take this as just a good starting point and some subjective advice from two guys who have run tables before. Um You may find that our advice works very well for your group, or it doesn't work at all. Uh, But this is just kind of what we have determined in our time, you know, thinking back at maybe some of the missteps we took when we first started DMing. And I hope that in listening to this episode, those of you who were already inspired to DM have some ideas for what your first campaign is going to be. And maybe those of you who weren't inspired now are i've never thought of myself as like inspiring people before until today so that is going to do it for today's episode uh tim do you have anything to plug anything that's coming up uh any any big events happening on nights and nerds that you want people to know about oh boy um well our last episode was a an interlude because we were we were one person short and and Instead of not recording anything, we recorded a kind of fun episode where they played some bad guys like in the setting, and mm-hmm. I th- everyone had a blast with it because it was it was a session where they knew the consequences were kind of immaterial and they could just be as dumb as they wanted. They had like they couldn't screw up like it was impossible 
So there, there was no burden or expectation of them to do anything except be totally silly. So that was a great episode. What we're getting into now is like we're sort of in the end game. I think where I, I think a few more months and we'll be definitely close to the very end of of this very complex and convoluted storyline uh, that I came up with. So they are finding out some stuff now that is really rocking their world in a bad way. So yeah, you guys should all be listening to Knights and Nerds and uh, you know follow follow Tim on Twitter. It's it's at Knights and Nerds, correct? That is correct. All right, well, guys, that's going to do it for today's episode. Uh, next week, we are doubling up on Canadians uh, because we are talking to uh, Courtney from Figuratively Speaking Minis, which is an Instagram page I've been following for a little while now. She's starting to expand her content and uh, even put some stuff on YouTube. So we'll be having a, a big discussion about miniature painting, one of my favorite pastimes. Uh, so until then... Um, Tell your players, tell your friends, tell everyone you know who's into this hobby or interested in it that Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is your place to go for RPG interviews, and I'll see you next time.